Hello, everybody. Welcome back. Especially you listening right now. Welcome to the podcast. What's going on? I don't know. Tell me. Hey, um, got a lovely episode, conversation, chat, whatever word you want to use to describe this format lined up for you right after um, these few words from our sponsors, uh, from me. That's the sponsor. Mm. And I'm planning some things for the podcast, which I'm really excited about. Um, a little, I don't know, a little torn with my, um, with some ideas, maybe some decisions. But um, anyway, it's exciting. It's keeping it exciting in my life right now. I don't know if excitement is uh, something which is needed. But you know what's really strange? Um, sorry, my com- good Lord. My computer, it's not a bad thing. I really thank Apple for introducing this feature called, I mean, it's been for there for many years called voiceover, which reads, but man, if it leaves my, if that's on, it just phew, keeps talking to me. It's annoying. You know, the way people are, and people, of course, by that, I mean, the powers that are condemning Russia. It's like that, uh, this thing that, that, that child who shat his pants in school or did something obnoxious, like, um, I don't know whether it's, it's of course grievous, of course, the reality is horrible, but I'm talking about like in school, we had that one guy or one girl, we all kind of rile them up and say, do, do, do it, do it, do, go, 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 go do that to the teacher, come on. And when they do it, you're like, oh, why do you go do that? Yeah, it wasn't nice. You know, we were just telling you, it doesn't mean you have to go do it. And I, I, I don't know why I get that sense. It's almost like. Oh, you know, you read the news and it's like, America warns China that they will take action if China does not condemn Russia's actions. Or I'm like, fuck you, man. Like, honestly, just like, I'm not saying, I mean, I think let's just first of all agree that um, whoever it is, whatever the reasons, going and dropping bombs on people um, is not cool. And I don't think that is debatable. Uh, whether it's in Afghanistan, whether it's in Iraq, whether it's on Pakistan, whether it's um, in Syria, wherever. And of course, now Ukraine, nothing excuses that. But um, the thing is, why do you, if you have a problem with certain things uh, like territory or whatever it may be. I don't know. I'm just confused, right? Like there's so many people being displaced and they had nothing to do with it. Like, of course, they're like, yeah, I was born here. My parents were born here. Okay. Why don't these few people go and sort of figure it out amongst themselves? Like fight it out, do something like, you know, like in in, in the times of chivalry, like you have a duel or through sword or pistols or through cards or through whatever it may be. Like, I don't know, um, whoever it may be, like, okay, Putin or whoever, why drag in so many people? I mean, of course, I know the answers or we might try to understand the answers, which, of course, geopolitical gain and balance of power, the power blocks, all that kind of shit. But mm, there should be some more evolved way, like, or maybe something, go back, like, have a pissing match, right? Like, oh, Putin's like, I pissed more than more volume and more distance than Zelensky I, I get to take Ukraine. Could be that. It, have a laugh, right? And so, so much misery. And and now everyone's like, oh, shouldn't do this. Like, 
We condemn this action. We're going to take sanctions. Are going to get more thing. I tell you, like waggle your finger kind of attitude. Like who are these people? Bunch of idiots. Um, and then on the other hand, you hear news like some idiot has gone and accidentally. I mean, first of all, just think about the statement: accidentally fired a missile from India. Like which moron? Saying my wife, which fucking idiot gives anyone this responsibility? Like Indians, I'm an Indian. First of all, before anyone goes up in arms, we, we don't deserve this because we know how we are, right? Like we we know we've met some people, we met each other, we we cut corners. I mean, things made in India, we are like, oh, okay, yeah, fuck. you buy something on Mintra or you buy something on Flipkart, yeah, oh, it looks like, oh, why do we have to only import from China or buy it from America? Like, because the thing is, if you buy jeans from Mintra, the chances that your cock's going to get stuck in that zip are really high because that guy, it, he was making the clothes or that lady was making the clothes and 4.59 is just before her shift or his shift gets over. I don't know why I'm trying to include both genders. And there's at five o'clock, oh, I have to go home. Huh? And you just forget that the zip is not attached and you just sell it because you know what? We'll buy anything. And that's something I've heard. I asked this guy when um, he had come home. I said, why are the guitars um, that we get here not as good? Or why? And he said, that's because the dealers say, you know what? Indians will buy anything. And that's what the trade-off is that we have one billion people. So, you know, the chance of buying shittier stuff is higher. And if they apply that uh, to, okay, you can apply that maybe to, consumer products right okay cool the stuff you get in india is not as good but you can't fucking apply that to things that can take away thousands of lives and it the fucking thing is that statement right there's so much misery in the world there's people dying mass bombing there are shellings uh, there's shelling there are shellings going on and shelling of hospitals and then some fucking idiot in india just leaves um forgets that there's a certain protocol and lets a missile explode. I don't know the entire story, but just that statement baffled the hell out of me. I'm like, what is wrong with us, dude? Like, how careless are we, right? And yeah, no one died. That's so amazing. And Pakistan, this is again from what I read, um, I don't know how true it is, didn't even know till a bunch of villagers complained that there's a missile. <laughs> how, what are we dealing with? Like, it's like, I mean, it literally could, you can replace missile with a, with anything and it'll be as, it'll be more, I don't know, it'll be, I'll take it seriously, right? Like, oh, um, like my neighbor's like, oh, did you leave the door open? Uh, because someone came and, you know, stole my dog. I didn't find out, but someone told me later that my dog is stolen. Like, it's literally in that context of conversation. Oh, um, why did you? let that missile fly into my country. I didn't know, but a few people who live next door to me told me, he's like, what the fuck? I don't get it, dude. I really don't get it that we have nuclear powers. Like, I mean, and North Korea is just firing one after other. I can do one more. I can do one more. Auntie, see what I have in my backpack. Like, <laughs> it's just so sad, so scary. Uh, ludicrous. Ludicrous, I love that word. But ridiculous. Whatever the word you want to describe, um, just bafflement and shock. Use it because it is what is it. It is, and I don't know. Then people are, oh, you must understand. Indian Air Force is powerful. We've got our own combat fighter craft, aircraft. We got our own combat machines. We can India, great. Yeah, but fucking idiots, go and leave. <laughs> God, these things to chance. Some idiot called Prashant or whatever be like yeah I don't know you know I just have to this thing my wife is not talking to me boom and it's just like whoa you forgot that there is a protocol oh five four three two one my son is so good at maths we are Indian multiplicate like, come on man there needs to be some I don't know there needs to be some accountability I think 
ridiculous. Anyway, uh, ridiculousness aside, I've got a lovely conversation uh, on the other side um, with a gentleman named Mark Green. He took a, you know, he really took time to share his story um, of, you know, his his idea of being um, half German, half American, growing up in two countries, uh, having the sense of finding his identity, belonging to both yet and to neither, this um, yearning to belong somewhere, discovering a love for living in Tel Aviv, this love for travel, um, to assimilate cultures, and how that led him to learn languages and having a knack. He speaks, I think, six to ten languages and how that helps him get insight into cultures. His, um, you know, his entire sort of uh, ability to work in different places, his decisions that he took and sort of certain directions that life took him on, certain paths that he explored that weren't really healthy for him. Um, his family life now, his decisions to take up multiple startups and how certain startups worked, certain didn't, how um, he discovered camel milk and that how, how that led him to start camel latte with his wife. So many things that this gentleman has done, exciting, and he t- takes, you know, a lot of care to share a lot of things that he's been through. So I really appreciate that. I'm sure you'll enjoy the conversation with Mark Green, which is coming up right after. Of course, as always, I appreciate you listening to this podcast, wherever you get it. Do, um, if you get a chance to rate it, much appreciated. If you get a chance to share it, of course, that would be really good. But if you just listen to it and enjoy it, I am extremely grateful. So as always, thank you. Goodbye. God bless. Catch you on the other side. Cheers. Mr. Mark Green, welcome to the Soapy Rao Show. How are you, sir? Sunday Brow, thank you very much uh, for your welcome. And I'm happy to be here and excited to have a conversation with someone I hardly know. <laughs> I know. Where in the world are you right now? Because uh, from our email exchanges, you said you're traveling at this point. So you have a very interesting story and um, you seem to be making most of this stuff unlocking down. Uh, yeah, you could say that. I mean, I, th- I probably... Um, did, have been doing the opposite of a lockdown for most of my life. And uh, I think most of my, uh, uh, or a lot of my, let's say, lifestyle uh, mm-hmm. is is very, um, uh, is way, very off of the norm. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but to, just to answer your question, so I'm currently uh, sitting in uh, Germany. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's, I have a home here and I have kids that actually go to school here at the moment. Okay. Okay. So yes, I am in Germany. Uh, when you contacted me, I was actually in Israel, and I um, do travel a lot. And for mm. the past, I would say about fifteen years, I tr- have traveled. I have switched countries or traveled back and forth between a few countries, on a bi-monthly basis, on on oh. average. So are and, these travels yeah. for, uh, what is the purpose? I mean, is it just something that you, is sort of ingrained in you, like just to pick up and leave and get stuff and visit places? Or is there a purpose of work or uh, visiting someone or going on holiday? So what, what is the primary motivator behind your travel? 
Okay, I'll try to give you a short answer and then I may expand on it because there are some interesting, you know, yeah. personal lessons that I've had uh, in this. But No, I, I mean, I, I'm totally, I'm totally, because this is something which I, I find interesting. I want to like, if it, I don't, don't worry about keeping it short because I, I would like to know what sort of, as I said before we started recording, like what got you to where you are and what sort of motivates the decisions you take later on in life. So don't worry about keeping it short. You can go as much into detail because I think um, my listeners and I will definitely find it interesting. Okay, so let me, I'll try to make it interesting uh, in a way. And I'm also very interested in hearing your story and about you. And I'm, you know, I don't know, your audience probably knows much more than I do. So uh, we'll keep <laughs> I think it for heard the audience. About but, me. <laughs> okay, but all right. Yeah. So, uh, so, Okay, so I was um, I was born to uh, an American father and a German mother. Mm -hmm. So I had you know two households and two religions. My father was Jewish, my mother mm -hmm. Christian. Um, so I had like you know more than one culture growing up. Um, that's not yeah. super unique. I mean, and and in your country, I, there's probably so many cultures that it's like it doesn't surprise anyone. Um, however, it did. Uh, you know, I did. Uh, spend a lot of time and all the summers with other families in the other country and I kept going back and forth and I've lived in both Germany and the US mm -hmm. uh, that I, I you know you can either feel at home in both places or you can feel the foreigner like in America I'm the German and and in Germany I'm, I'm the American mm -hmm. um, so things like when I when I was in high school in the US everything's like oh there's this kid from Germany that came and you know mm -hmm. we got to put him on the soccer team and then i was on the <laughs> soccer team but i was the worst soccer player that you could imagine and so my job for the whole soccer season was just to sit on the bench and count like the the number of shots and the goals and like to help the you know help the referee and <laughs> but you were the token uh, european footballer right <laughs> i was the german yeah so um so i learned early on to play different roles right so uh, mm. you know and and also growing up with Two, two languages and and I ended up I ended up doing international studies so I studied in England and in and it took me to France and Spain and 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 Germany and the US uh, both internships and and studies uh, like international business with international people and so my so I was so ingrained in this internationalism that you know for a while I lived only with like Spanish people or with French people and like I completely took on their 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 language and and everything um, mm. you know, like so really soaked it up. And because I didn't, didn't, for some reason, I never felt really rooted anywhere. And, right. and right. that's, uh, so that, that, that kind of gave me the, uh, well, I think that was kind of a, uh, the spark that caught, that put me on, on a, on a path to learn a lot of languages. And right. So how, okay. Because, you know, just to put it in context, right? Like, so we, we kind of automatically assume, especially sitting in say, South Asia, Southeast Asia. And of course, that isn't a commonly held perspective, but there is a larger sort of narrative that the West is one sort of block, right? Europe and North yeah. America, especially. And we kind of, I mean, of course, if you travel to Europe, you know that it's multiple uh, countries that make it up. And sure. the US is more, I wouldn't say homogenous, but it's, it's also multiple states that make up. But for you, being, um, you know, in a family where your father's German, your mother's American, did you feel the divide? Because, I mean, I, I really like this idea or interested in the idea of playing multiple roles for whatever reason it may be, whether it's to fit in or self-preservation or this idea of uh, maintaining this um, sense of identity in, 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 in various countries and in a, in a truly global 
um, context where you are traveling and um, you are speaking to people from different cultures, but yet at home, you still have this fundamental idea of who am I? So, so how did it, um, did you find or do you still find a big difference? Because um, I'm asking this question in context of right now, Europe being in the spotlight with what's happening in Ukraine and, and the Russian sort of, mm -hmm. if you want to call the media's words, the invasion of Ukraine. But what is European identity in itself? And is it sort of one large identity where a lot of people from Spain and Portugal and Italy and Germany kind of do they identify with this larger national or sort of continental identity? And how different is it from American uh, identity and culture? I mean, I don't know if it's too vast a question, but I hope it makes sense in the, the context of where we are today with um, everything that's going on. From my experience, the Europeans do not feel very European. I mean, sure, there's a love of Europe and, you know, because it brought peace and everything. Mm -hmm. uh, but, you know, the fund fundamentally, the question, who am I? Yeah. Uh, everyone is very, um, yeah, is very rooted in their, in their place of upbringing. Um, mm -hmm. Because, and there's different reasons for it. Um, one is because the, the, the mobility is still very, very low in Europe, even though, okay, there's, you know, like, thousands of, I don't know, Portuguese or Polish moving to Germany and France uh, to work and things like that, that does exist. Um, but yeah, but I mean, th I think it's also in human nature in a way to, to, you know, to box people in and just to see them as part of a group or a minor or, a, you know, a certain group. Yeah. So that's, it's hard to jump these borders. And that's also how people feel. And I also realize that mo in most of Europe and even in you know very decentralized places like Germany, yeah. Uh, so decentralized, I mean, like in in France, for example, you have Paris is a major city, a major center, very urban, right? And then you have almost like with a few exceptions, almost the rest of France is basically countryside and farmers. Mm. I'm, I'm a little bit exaggerating, but essentially it's like that. So it's a centralized place, and everything is decided in Paris. And the laws go out and, you know, and all the trains go through Paris if you want to go anywhere. It's like, so, uh, and in Germany, it's the opposite. Germany is decentralized. So we have a lot of cities in Germany that are conglomerates, like, like metropolitan areas. There's like a yeah. whole bunch of them and they all compete with each other and they all have big industries. And so there's not like, if you live in Germany, it's not like this is the place you have to be. Not at all. And so, but even in Germany, or maybe because of that, um, that, a lot of people who they grow up in a certain village, they inherit their parents' house and they just stay mm. there forever. So, so very often they have in the the local dialect of like even the town, like from one town to the next, the dialect can change. Especially in Germanic languages, that's very mm. prominent. It's not as much in English languages, uh, right? You know. It's more the accent, I think, in 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 the UK, for instance, when you can tell from a certain part of the country that you are from, when it's the northern accent or the southern. But so I want to understand because. The idea of village, of course, is a relative. But what would a typical German village would it would it be more agrarian? Like because I, I I've been to Switzerland because I have some family who live there, mm -hmm. and I've seen like say in the rural parts, the so-called rural parts, it's no, I mean not comparing, but it's very different from an Indian village, right? Because the whole um, level of maybe development, if you're looking at parameters, maybe infrastructure, maybe education, maybe healthcare, very different. Uh, idea of a village when, say, I went to, say, um, you know, Weinfeld and outside Zurich, right? 
Yes. But uh, what would it typically consist? I, I don't know. I don't. I don't know. Sort of put you on the spot, like a, in, in an anthropologist sort of role. But since you've lived there and you've experienced, um, you know, cultures across Europe, in Spain and in America, because even in America, as you said, you can go to these these sort of places outside, um, you know, say rural uh, New York, like say outside Albany or wherever, and you have these huge tracks. We got <laughs> just an example. I went to this place called Honey O Falls, which is outside Rochester, New York, and literally my cousin who was working for I think uh, Ford or for GM at that point for their hybrid facility he was staying in this little outhouse of a uh, farmer who ran a cornfield um, and it was literally just cornfields everywhere and I'm like is, is this America because it's not the big apple right so I just wanted to get an idea of what your experience has been uh, traveling across these um, metropolitans but also the smaller places you know that's a very interesting observation uh, in Europe as you probably have seen uh, or experienced uh, the 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 villages or the towns each mm. town has like an entrance or like several entrances and mm -hmm. exits so you know when you're inside and you know when you're outside all the ah. fields and the woods are always like between the towns and then the town itself in the center will have a church or two churches right you know of different nominations around that you'll have like stores and then you have usually residential areas usually mixed with Uh, commercial areas so wherever mm. you are in germany you can walk no further than maybe one or two minutes to a bakery ah, or to okay. any type of shopping uh, you could do on foot so that is europe and which is vastly vastly different than the u.s so which is very US was automobile built, yeah yes it was built on automobiles exactly i mean mm. maybe not built but that's well i mean it was you know it was wild country and there was you need to needed transportation for everything yeah and uh yeah so It's very different. And even I, I spent a lot of my time in New York City as mm. when I was young, like before 9-11. Mm. When I, I sometimes I have nostalgia to it because nine, because New York was, it was more authentic, more dangerous, more exciting, more, you know. But anyway, not necessarily better, you know, there was more crime and everything. Yeah. But, um, it, but even today, if you go, even today, You go through New York City, you're in the middle of a big, the biggest city uh, in, in that hemisphere, and then you drive across the bridge into New Jersey, and yeah. within 10 minutes or so, you're like in the total wild. Like yeah. there's, there's, you know, there's bears and, you know, wild animals and deer running around and like people, I have cousins who live outside of New York and when I'm there, it's like, you know, they, they have bears come to their back porch and, and it's, it's crazy. Like how, how that, yeah. that difference is, is really amazing. So you don't have that in rural Europe, uh, in parts of, you don't have, because the reason I ask, um, sorry to take away from the yeah. point, uh, but I was reading recently, um, I don't know if it's true or it's just something that the media uh, reported that there's this huge uh, wild boar problem in Germany. And apparently there's some story of a wild boar um, going to this nudist beach and nicking this lady's handbag. <laughs> I don't know how true it is, but if it is, it's fucking great because I, 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 I love reading this stuff and this is what makes me feel like longing for travel, right? Because there's this sense yeah. or you build in your head this romantic idea that if I go to, you know, a certain, say, if I go to like the, the Black Forest or I go to Mannheim, it's going to be like this. And I create this expectation in my head and I'd love to hear what you do as such a frequent traveler to various countries and, and um, also maybe tell people while you're on that point of the number of languages you speak because I want to go into that after that, after the, after talking sure. about this. Well, you know, the um, uh, it, I have the feeling that in Europe, that because because 
the U.S. is still like I think the the wild parts of U.S. the nature parts between the cities are are still almost unexplored. It's because it's still in relative terms a new country, mm. right? When when Germany, uh, sorry Germany, when Europe was really you know the Romans built a lot of things here. Then you had the Middle Ages and the churches and the towns and like it grew. So by by today. You can say that even though there are some, like the Black Forest, is it's a big forest. It's true, yeah. and there are mountains and things. But essentially, even there, you, you could say that almost every tree is numbered by you right. know by by municipalities. They go, they know every tree, they they check for everything, and they control every growth. So it's not really wild. There are some, you know, you do have some wild boar, and you do have some some animals in nature. Uh, you know, especially like also like hawks and, 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 and you know, like um, predator birds and things like that. It's mm. nice to see. Um, but uh, yeah, but essentially it's it's a nature that is pretty much controlled by humans. Okay. And you Got can, it. you actually feel that. And in the U.S., it feels different. In the U.S., if you're in, in a wild, you know, in a nature area, it, it feels like it's hasn't been touched in ages, you know, in forever or by humans at all sometimes. So uh, mm. that's 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 my experience. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm you know I'm. So I do travel a lot. It's true, but it's also most of my travels are really to the same countries. Because right. I mean, I can give you a little background on that if if you like. Uh, yeah, that would be great just to understand. Uh, I yeah, I'll, I'll jump in when I ha I had a when I was uh, in my mid twenties or so. I started a business with some friends. Mm. And uh, we were doing, you know, consulting, web design business and, and, and that sort of thing. Uh, this was even like before Google came along. And, and, mm -hmm. and so it was the early days and we were we had quite some success and we grew. And then, you know, one partner left and we bought him out. And then eventually then I had this partner that that I had been with for a while. But there was always like we worked together very well, but there was always some kind of like not. I don't know. I don't want to say mistrust, but it, you know, it wasn't a perfect marriage. And at some point, mm. he wanted out and mm. uh, to pursue other interests. And he, yeah, I mean, yeah, I don't want to. Any, anyway, so it, it took we we. He wanted a lot of money to to get out, but and, right. you know, basically, basically, either pay me a lot or we'll let just let the business destroy itself and lose all the clients mm. and everything. And so I was put in a position. It was kind of hard, and we worked next to each other with this kind of bad feeling and long negotiation for like maybe a year, a little bit longer than a year. Oof. So and that kind yeah. of nags on you, right? And this is a time yeah. when so that was a very hard time in my life. I was, uh, uh, I don't know, it was like early 30s or something yeah and or mid 30s and and i had just had like the, the, my first baby mm. and um and i was working cr like crazy because it was yeah. uh, we were just working um service-based businesses yeah. and you know eventually we got uh i bought him out and mm. it was okay and then i was basically um in the situation where i had this business with 10 employees mm. And had to make it work. So, you know, so it was a great chance, but I was working like crazy. So, you know, at least 12 hours in the office per day. In the mornings, I didn't see my baby when I left because I left too early and I came back too late. And uh, so, so this yeah. went for a while, right? And so what happened, to keep it short, um, I, I realized that where, where I'm heading with this service-based business, I keep having to sell more, more contracts to clients uh, 
to give work to everybody and pay the salaries. But the mm. more, you know, the more business I bring in, the more people I have to hire to make it. So I saw that it's mm. like there was it wasn't it wasn't really scalable. And I said that, you know, it's just going to create more work. And I'm already working at 100 percent. So right. um, what do I have to do? So I said, yeah, OK, maybe the first thing is I have to uh, get someone to do the sales for me so I can strategically develop other parts of the business, you know, more scalable, yeah. more product, uh, product uh, focused things. And so I hired someone straight out of university and uh, he was really great. And I taught him everything. And I, he worked next to me for one year and I taught him everything, like how, how to do sales, cold calls, all this meetings, ding, ding. And after one year, he started bringing in sales. And nice. it, was just, it was just starting to work. And this was just a few weeks before my annual summer vacation that I usually spend in the US visiting right. so family. This was all this is in, you're in Germany? This is this, from Germany, yes. This right. was in Germany. And what time and frame are we looking at? Like early 2000s, mid 2000s? 2000, that was 2008. No, okay. Sorry, 2000, yeah, around 2008. Okay, cool. Okay, just to give context, right? Yeah. So this was, uh, so he, and he's, now he now the story gets interesting. So I was it was just before the summer. And uh, so I was getting, you know, the business ready. But... Uh, I had about two weeks or so to go and with I was still like had all these responsibilities and I was trying to you know make sure that that he was like my secondhand man and I wanted him to like manage the business while I was while, while I was gone for five weeks uh, or six weeks and um, so uh, then like a week before my trip he came to my office and he said I'm sorry I'm resigning I'm leaving and I'm going to join the competition the one big competitor that we had oh man and the local one right and this was right. like the week before I was supposed to leave then he was supposed to handle everything so i mean you know uh, how do you say um on on a person on a personal terms i was good with everyone so i'm like you know i told him look stay on for the summer handle this you know like i can't just like change everything and yeah. it, it was it was okay but it created kind of it created very a lot of stress in me and uh, i so so that i told my wife she has to fly she and her baby have to fly first yeah and go down and go to like the vacation place yeah. and i will join her a week later or a, a five days later or something and because i still have a lot of things to do now yeah so so she left and i was working i think day and night like i i mean i maybe slept th three hours a night and i was like kind of just stress working the rest of the time together now i totally overstressed myself what i you know and um so what happened is on the day of my uh on the day before my flight i was i came home from the office i think at maybe three in the morning mm. i parked my car i packed my uh, no I, I i i packed my stuff and i go to sleep i set my alarm for maybe it was seven in the morning to to catch a, a bus to the airport right yeah and so my alarm rings i get up and i basically fall back down it's like i was like something happened like it, like something hit me in the face like i couldn't get up i was feeling like super 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 bad like i felt like no energy no nothing and i'm i was so bad i couldn't even get up so i called the airport i said yeah i got to change the fly how would that work and then after half an hour it passed and i was i felt better so I'm like, ah, that's it. I got to go. And then I was back in my stress. And I packed everything and I rushed to the airport, right? And then I remember, um, uh, yeah, I remember like sitting at the terminal, then wait, uh, at the gate waiting for my flight. And I had like my, my, my uh, little suitcase in my hand, the handle, and I had my hand on the handle. I remember it like shaking, 
right? Oh. They, I went in the plane, and about 40 minutes after takeoff, I basically collapsed. And, like, I was so bad, they called a, out a doctor on the plane. Mm. And then I and this whole flight between Germany and uh, New York, which was about a seven or eight hour flight, I was on my back, uh, sitting on the kitchen floor, on lying on my back with with an oxygen mask, and you know, like someone checking on me every half hour, like how are you doing, how are you doing? Ouch! <laughs> so, how, how old were you at this point? Thirty. Uh, uh, um, 38 or something right but, that's okay so was that was that a so what was it what is was it a sort of a cardio i mean a cardiac cardiovascular kind so, of issue so what, what it, so what it was so so you you, you know and i have to say like my father had a heart attack at, at just you know at 45 mm. my his mom had a heart attack at 45 and died so Ouch. that's also cardio is in the family however mm. um no it was just like i think it was just I never was diagnosed and I only like understood maybe a year or two later that what I had was like, it was a classical burnout, like a burnout okay. syndrome. Right. I, I think. Okay. But, like but panic, you don't know, you know, like pa panic attack, panic right. attack, uh, burnout. And mm. uh, so what happened is they picked me up when I arrived in New York, they picked me up with a wheelchair uh, and wheeled me to outside. And I had a friend was picking me up. A friend in, in New York was picking me up or well from New Jersey, whatever. And he saw me coming in the wheelchair. He says, what's going on? I'm like, yeah, well take me to the hospital. He took mm. me to the hospital and in the hospital, they, uh, you know, put an IV and they hydrated me, my body and all of that, you know, all night and everything. And I just lay there. And so all my vitals in the morning were fine. And so in the morning they unplugged me and I said, please don't unplug me. It's like, cause you know, I felt it like going bad but no, they unplugged me. They said, no, you can't stay. You know, that's all we could do for you. You have to leave. And mm. so I called my friend. I said, you know, I'm outside. Pick me up from the hospital. And they, he picked me up. And I basically spent maybe five days in my friend's bed on my back, looking at the ceiling, thinking about my life. Yeah, you must have been terrified, right? Because you think you're in the prime of health. You're yeah. doing everything. And suddenly this just hits you in the face like a sort of wave of, uncertainty i mean your, your your body just gives up on you it must be yeah it must have been life-changing is probably one of the words but yeah i, I mean yeah. like like it was a wake-up call where i where i know i can't just wait till it's over and then just continue doing the same thing like i realized mm -hmm. i have to change something and right. this is where like my whole life took a complete complete turn mm -hmm. and i'll try to keep it short now so essentially though what i did is i decided that i you know i need more I need more downtime and I need to change things and I need to take some, um, some courageous decisions, make some mm -hmm. courageous decisions with my business. Yeah. Uh, courageous meaning, uh, what I ended up doing. Okay. I tr for the first thing I tried was, okay. I said, okay, look, we're going to get, there's this place that we, my wife and I had been to Israel a few times and she has family there. And this is a place I really mm -hmm. love. And so I said, this is a place I really enjoy being. I'm going to see if I can go there for a few days each month or for like a week each month mm. and see how that works. So I did that for like two, three months and okay. it was great for me, but my employees got pretty demotivated and yeah. didn't nothing, you know, things started falling apart when I wasn't there. Yeah. And so that didn't really work. So I said, okay, this, we have to change things. And I decided, okay, my goal, I want to move my whole family to Israel yeah. and we're going to downsize the business. We're going to, uh, but we're going to do it in a, you know, in a, in the right way, the right way, meaning I, I felt, I felt, um, responsible for my employees and I wanted them to have new jobs. 
Yeah. And so it took a year and a half. And this year and a half, I basically, uh, one after the other, found other jobs until I only had like my main uh, project manager uh, left. And with her, I visited all the main clients, uh, all the clients. And I said, look, we're no longer supporting our software. We're, we're stopping this. We're stopping this. And, uh, good, you know, and goodbye. So and then she had another job. And but the clients all came back to me and said, no, we still want you. We want this software. We want this. We want that. We need this. Uh, and, you know, what can we do? And then I said, hey, you know. That's smart. So what I what I ended up doing is I ended up um, well getting rid of the eighty percent of the small clients, and I kept the twenty percent important clients, and I gave them new contracts that they all signed because they wanted to, and they all gave me uh, basically, uh, yeah, they gave me uh, um, you know uh, uh, contracts to to work. So I had basically mm. these contracts in my pocket. I could move, and I moved my family to Israel. And so you could do this alone. Then. Sorry, this, you, and, so, and I could do it alone, plus uh, working with um, with uh, some um, doing some outsourcing. So this was the early right. days of like uh, you know, Odesk or what's now called uh, um, Upwork. Uh, mm -hmm. So you know, freelancers. So I started working with freelancers, and I had um, uh, Philippine and Indian freelancers, and mm -hmm. one I mean one of one uh, Indian freelancer is like my almost my best friend now. Like I'm still working with him now mm -hmm. after. Like still after the, you know, more than 12 years or something, nice. uh, we're still working. To, to, but yes, yeah, so I did some outsourcing and a lot of things I could do for myself. But the, essentially the situation was then for the next two or three years, I was working 80% less, was mm. earning the same. It wasn't very much anyway, right? I mean, right. I wasn't making a lot of money, but... Um, but you were burning yourself out trying in that illusion that, oh my God, I'm so busy. There's so many clients, there's so many things to do that... that Little did you realize that you can do, uh, I mean, this is sort of one of those themes that is repeating itself during the lockdown. People are just like mindlessly chasing after this certain um, narrative, which has been fed to them saying, you work more, you earn more, you get more bonus, you get more salary. But little do they realize that their, 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 their physical, the impact on their physical and mental health is just draining them. And it's really not yeah. worth it. And it's, it's something you experienced before the pandemic, which is great. But, and I mean, just from one other thing you said, it's almost like the 80-20 principle, right? 20% of your clients were anyway giving you 80% uh, of your returns. So you just kind of, um, it, took, it took you that burnout to realize that I don't need so much um, infrastructure. I don't need such a big team. I can just do it. Uh, and that's really nice that they had the faith in you to come back and say, don't, don't have to completely go to the other extreme and shut down. But keep it going on this thing, which I think is really amazing to hear from um, from a point of hope for people, right? Saying that there are people who trust you and who want you and you're not just disposable as an asset. Right. I mean, I, I have to say for me, I never wanted to work in a big corporation. I had the experience only as an intern. Mm. Uh, I did a few internships of like six months each. So I, you know, I, so I did see the co corporate culture, but essentially I was always on my own. Uh, my father was entrepreneurial. So that, that was my thing, but that's definitely not for everyone. And yeah. it's not, and it's, if, and honestly, if you want to make a lot of money, I would, that's not the right route to take. I mean, the unless, you know, you, then you'd okay. have to be one in a million or one in a hundred thousand, you know, with like the percentage of businesses that fail and everything. So I had a yeah. lot of failures after that. You know, I tried a lot of launching a lot of different things in, in the, you know, in the following years then. And uh, success was, I mean, it, it was kept afloat. It was always enough to like kind of travel the world. And, and but what, you know, what's interesting is we had the, so I had uh, two, two little kids by then. And yeah. what we did, 
Um, so my wife is very different personality than I am. She's Ukrainian, by the way. We can talk about that as well. Wow. But, okay, that's um, tough. Tough one for her now, right? Yeah. So, yeah. so she she was she was an immigrant to Germany. She came at okay. fourteen with her parents. Right. So you know they came with they had nothing. They had you know they back then in the Soviet Union you could buy toilet paper once a year, and you, like and when this it runs out, you're pre nineteen ninety, you know, right? Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. yeah. So she came. She I think she came in nineteen ninety to to. Uh, no, sorry. No, she came in 93. Uh, she mm. came in 94, 94 to Germany. Yeah. So she, she, she was 14. Right. And, um, so, so her, her growing up, it's like whatever she can achieve, she's trying to hold on to. So, mm. and I'm completely different. Like, because I'm always like, I never felt I had a home. Like I always felt I needed to go somewhere else to find myself and to, to feel at home and all of that. Yeah. Uh, you know, different culture, different, anything. <laughs> and uh yeah. so when when we were moving from germany to israel now i'm just saying we moved because uh i wanted to shut every door just to have to have the new ones open right mm. and you know sell everything we have get rid of everything and she's kind of the opposite she kind of wanted That's to hold on shocking, to everything. yeah for someone who's left their home once already it must have been quite a difficult move, right? Because, I mean, this sounds like a story from India in the 1990s. We, we didn't have much. It was an economy which wasn't as open. So yeah. once people have, they tend to hoard and they have this thing like, oh, the scarcity mindset, right? And I'm sure that's mm -hmm. um, common across countries that experience that kind of thing. Of course, we weren't by any means the Soviet Union, but we did have a very conservative outlook towards globalization when in the late 80s, 90s. So there is a similarity in outlook, I suppose. Yeah, it's the same in Germany. The war generation, they can't throw anything away. They have to mm -hmm. hold on to every little, you know, cup of plastic of yogurt or what they might still need. <laughs> Recycle, um, basically fill up the shampoo bottle with water before throwing it. <laughs> yeah, exactly, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, exactly. It's, it's there across cultures, yeah. But I'm, I'm sure you've noticed also, like when, when, when you stay in one place for too long, you get, you know, you start your mind start worrying about details that aren't really important and then once you travel even if you travel just for a few days and you come back just having been somewhere completely different it's a, it changes your perspective when you're back like you see things in a different Absolutely. way not for long because yeah. you, usually you fall back into the old habits and environment but for for you know for a moment like for a few days i've noticed that when i visit the states and then i come back to germany and everything like the cars seem small the roads seem tight uh, yeah and that and that kind of like that gives you like this shift, you know, like uh, yeah, like it's you so wake up for a minute, you know, to to realize that there's a there's a world out there filled with so many other people. Because what happens, I think, and that's such an important thing to understand is to you you, you sit here, the things start to become your world starts shrinking. You become a big fish in a small pond. You start giving too much emphasis to your own concerns right like the and the concerns become more and more petty as time goes on it becomes like oh this person offended me on this whatsapp group or um the the, the, the this particular whatever maybe the help is acting up but when you go out and as you said it might be internationally or just locally somewhere you're like you know what my problems aren't as big as i make them out to be there is a world out there which is going to uh, you know revolve um, with all the people who are living on this planet and I'm not as important as I make myself. I think I am, you know? Yes. It's, it's so important. My wife and I, uh, and I wasn't a big person on travel. I did live abroad uh, for mainly my education, but my wife loves traveling and any chance we get, um, 
she, she wants to get out and you know pick up bags and whether that's for like a day or whether when, when i when i did the edinburgh fringe it was a month or when we went um you know to 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 say um a free holiday we won through a johnny walker sort of scratch card competition and we won a trip to south korea which was crazy i'm like are we doing wow. this and she's like yeah um and it's the, the weird part is i'm the drinker in the relationship and she won the the, the trip <laughs> That's <laughs> no, just mind blowing. I love the idea of travel. That's why I keep sort of coming back to that point with you. Is like, um, you know, it's like for like just like how you said you keep going back to the U.S. because home, part of your home is there. But how you fell in love with Israel, we have a love uh, relationship with Sri Lanka, and it's just the neighboring country. But it's not exotic in that sense, right? It's not like there are much more luxurious resorts or destinations, say in Thailand or um, in Cambodia or whatever it may be. But just something. In that country, and we seriously uh -huh. contemplated before the lockdown of actually maybe moving there at some point if we can get our sort of respective work to be flexible enough so we can work from there. Maybe the, me doing the podcast, she runs a sustainable e-commerce platform, and that's something that seriously we thought about because it makes us better human beings. Not being stuck, and I'm not saying home is bad; home is great, but being flexible enough to get out of this comfort zone, if you want to call it, or get out mm -hmm. of this really. A nice environment to go to a place where you can actually uh, meet different people. That's the biggest thing, and and I want to get your thoughts on that because you you mentioned this up uh, earlier in the conversation about meeting people through your internship, staying with Spanish people, and uh, maybe maybe we can can you talk about that experience before we move on to the your your, your time in Israel, how your family sort of coped with that move. Maybe mm -hmm. just your earlier uh, earlier years when you lived with different people people from different cultures. Uh, so I, I also was in England for my education for two years. Oh, right? nice. In, in a university there. and um, But it was an international program. So it was about, you know, less than less than 20% of the students were actually British. And all mm. the others were, you know, Spanish, French, mostly Spanish, French, and German, and uh, a few other nationalities. Um, and so, and we were kind of like a tight student group. Mm. So that's something that and that's an environment that I really flourish in because first of all I you know I I was one of the few that actually spoke all of the languages of the of all the students. Okay so how many do you and, speak let's just get that out of the way because I think it's really important I think people are itching well, to know because Look I I can communicate half decently okay in 10 languages but I do speak six very well and 10 languages that's yeah, crazy. Speak, yeah, <laughs> uh, it sounds crazy, but you know, I've, and I've had these ten languages since you know, and I haven't, I haven't added one since I was maybe twenty three or twenty something, twenty three. Uh, so I haven't because I haven't really worked with languages for many years after that. Mm. Um, I think ten is a good number. I think most people, uh, I don't think, will hit even half of that in their lifetime. <laughs> so I think ten is, uh, yeah, and and you still, um, you, you still can uh, converse and, um, as you said, communicate in all these ten languages. Yes, I mean, okay, let, yeah. So, yeah, there, there's six I'm I'm completely fluent in, and I've I could switch back and forth, and it's no problem. And the interesting thing is because of the way that we've 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 lived, because uh, you know, my wife not having wanted to, I'm not switching for too long to back to the subject, but mm. um, she, she, you know, she she never wanted to give up like the old place. So what we ended up doing instead of just fighting for the you know for a year, we were just fighting where should we live? Like I want to go yeah. here, she wants to. Then I'm like, wait a minute. Well, let's do a mindset shift 
Yeah. We're actually, we have, you know, we just have ho two home bases and we yeah. can have them both. And so what we did is we registered the kids in kindergarten and in school in both countries. And then ah. we switched whenever we wanted. And then every two or three months, we would just hop back to the other country. And, you know, mm. the kids are taken care of and, we, and everything was there. I mean, it doesn't necessarily make sense because you're paying, you know, uh, uh, you're playing all the insurance twice and, and all yeah. this stuff. Logistically, it doesn't really make sense, but it, it helped me get out of this thing between my wife where, you know, I just wanted to like say goodbye to that old country and never go back. Mm. Uh, so you know, she got then, what she wanted and you got what you wanted. Sort of like a compromise, right? No. Yeah. Well, not just, it's, it wasn't really, it was more than a compromise. It was more, it was more in a, yeah, in a way it was a compromise. Uh, we, we both, otherwise we, we could either both feel that we were giving into the other or mm. we could both view it as like as an enrichment and as a positive thing. Yeah. So we, you know, we shifted that mindset and that, that was really good. And now because of that shift, um, uh, coming to your earlier question, um, which was, okay, now I... The language is part. my right? own train of thought. So, so, no, so what are the six languages you speak fluently? Because I, I think that's important uh, to know that. Right. So I wanted to tell you that. So, my, so because of that, my kids, they speak, uh, they, even when they were very small, they spoke four languages fluently and they could just like switch wow. between them. And that's that so, really and, and that taught me that that is like totally normal. Now, I think in India, it's like everyone grows up with two or three languages, right? Uh, it's about yeah. Usually, it's about you know, it's it's depending on where you're from, and especially if you live in a city, it's typically English, the um, the the language of the local state or the city, uh, which yep. usually depending on the region uh, changes. And um, many people do pick up the one of the national. I wouldn't say the, the one of the official languages. So English, yeah. Hindi, which is official, it's not the national language, but yeah, and and that mm -hmm. tends to sort of. Um, be the case but in my case I just speak English and I speak I speak the local language in the state where I'm from which is Canada but I don't mm -hmm. really speak Hindi fluently at all in fact um, um, a lot of times I'm when I travel up north in the country people are like well, you're an Indian and you don't speak Hindi and I'm like dude I never <laughs> needed to speak the language yeah so there is a lot but of you, do you uh, understand it or only partly little bit like I can't watch a movie in that language I can't if people are oh, having like okay. a heated debate in that language in Hindi, I can't follow it. I can understand a little bit uh, of how do I get there, what do I eat, or it's basic, as you said, you know, it can manage to communicate, but it's very, very, probably very minimal communication skills in that language. But it's interesting, so, which we can yeah. talk about later, like how languages are within our country. A lot of people look at India going, wow, such a rich country. Of course, it is rich with language and culture, but it's also now people are becoming more isolated from each other saying oh look at that person they speak hindi they're not like us look at that person they speak this regional language and while it's a benefit because a lot of people want to consume content when it comes to a netflix or amazon and it's a rich content market for regional language it also is on the flip side being a negative aspect saying mm, you know why aren't people in the south speaking hindi it's a national pride so I want to understand that from you, whether you felt that divide that language can also bring while it also can be a uniting thing. But let's let's get to this 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 aspect of your life where you moved to Israel, like your kids speak all these languages and what that kind of experience was like. Yeah. Um, yeah. So for me, my, my personality is that wherever I go, wherever I travel, uh, even in the past, wherever I you know, I, I went to Mexico to learn Spanish. I just took a backpack and I was 18 or something. Mm -hmm. And, I, you know, and then I just like I had like my system was like, don't tell anyone, you know, English. 
right uh, you know start from like i had a book like spanish in 30 lessons with mm. me i started on the plane and you know three weeks later i was fluent i mean it's also i got sick i had to be taken care of i had to, it was a life and death situation i had to tell the hospital what was wrong and all this kind of thing so but i just like jump in the language and just like so so my personality is wherever i go i immediately try to fit into the culture i try to imagine myself staying there forever uh you know raising a family uh, uh mm. you know building a life um so even if i'm there if somewhere for like two days like i kind of like try i start that process in my mind for some mm. reason and that's just how i am so for me there was no big culture shock or anything it was even though the, the you know there could be because it's the culture is completely different it yeah. was more like uh the israel is the first place where i say hey i i feel more at home here than anywhere else so far that's really cool so, so is I, that are you talking about like um uh, jerusalem or tel aviv which which city is yeah uh, so we were in tel aviv which is like very very unreligious and very that's the commercial capital, western right? style right yeah essentially okay essentially it's the the, the thing is with, with israel it's, it's this thing because israel is in the news so much Mm. so that you you know you even if you don't want to you have preconceived notions and yeah, yeah israel is one of the places that people are so surprised when they visit because it's nothing at all from what they expected my parents and, went and they were so amazed by what uh, the israelis have done for themselves in the middle of the desert with the way they grow crops the way they've sort of made made um not some i mean made a lot out of nothing right which was yes. quite remarkable because i met one person who was giving a ted talk in india who was ex idf and he was doing some work with the um tech space and i mean the thing is every israeli i've spoken to is just so while of course you know they have um a story about growing up in israel and a lot of it does um have undertones of unrest and the 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 local and you know the local environment which they live in there's a lot there's a lot of i think i think there's a i wouldn't say worldliness to it but there because i think a lot of people think that israel is just a group of people who are from israel but a lot of it is a lot of europeans who moved and a lot of other uh, jews from across the world so it in its nature while there are a lot of jews and predominantly jews who live in israel the 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 cultures are very diverse right yes yes completely mixed yes also you mm. see that in the food you see that in everything and and the, the the interesting thing israel is the one place where those cultures yes there's so many diverse cultures but then they all mix mm. much much more than in other societies right would would you say it, that the religious undertone which is common that helps or is it that they the idea that a lot of people have had families who've been through hardship that unites people i think it's the latter okay the latter although i mean yeah i guess the, the jews they they are a people in, in a sense that they are an ethnic people even mm. though they come they have different ethnicities now uh, mm. you know because of all the countries they've lived over generations um is still it's the Jew, uh, the uh, the Jewishness goes through the uh, to the maternal lineage, right? So mm. you, you, the, if your mother is Jewish, you are Jewish. So all right. but essentially all Jews today can could trace their ancestry back to that one group of I don't know how many it was, like so many thousands, sixty thousand people or so that once stood on 
by Mount, on Mount Sinai on the way from slavery in Egypt to to the land of Israel, like you know mm. where Moses got the Ten Commandments, na 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 na. So there's essentially uh, everyone, all the Jews today, basically descend from this group of people. Ac- you know, actually yeah. blood bloodline. So um, that's crazy. You know, it's, yeah, it's a little more, but but it's it's the only yeah it's it's the only people that is that is. Well, maybe not the only, you know, I don't know about some Asian cultures, but but it's it, yeah, I mean, but it's it's, it's, it's one people now. that has yeah. that it, it's it's very rare that a, a group of a, a, an actual people disperse mm. throughout the world for thousands of years and generations and don't just disappear and don't. And sorry, which when was this uh, the sixty thousand the tribe of sixty thousand? Which which uh, era was that? What what time frame are we looking at? There is it like five thousand years back? Is, is something like no um i i, I don't even know yeah Actually, but some, something <laughs> like that but yeah i think and so the jewish the jewish calendar is uh is right now we're in the year somewhere like 5790 or something mm. like that so mm-hmm. uh yeah so that's basically there that that's how but the yeah that so that time though uh that must have been i'm guessing maybe uh maybe 2500 years ago or so right i mean you know when when were the when was the time of the pharaohs around 3000 i think 3000 4000 years back it may yeah. have been 3000 4000 i don't even know if it's that long <laughs> mm. so yeah but yeah 5, i mean that was 4000 so. bce around 3000 bce so that makes it about 5000 years back but i mean i'm not an i'm not a historian so i don't want to go down that rabbit hole and get the dates wrong people are like no it's wrong it's wrong. <laughs> no but what's but, like like i'm not so su- like yeah you know super super knowledgeable in and all things uh, you know that uh, of of you know all things jewish but i know that yeah. the when when the the old testament uh the so the five books of moses when that was written Mm-hmm. it was you know it, it was written just just after these events took place and right. a lot of the a lot of the things that you know a lot of the scriptures a lot of the uh, a lot of that is written uh, there there's two interesting aspects and the one is that uh that uh when they even after you know so many generations in all the different countries where Jews were dispersed after the destruction of their temple by the Romans uh <clears throat> once they come back together like now now the world is a small place right and yeah. now we you can see that every jew on every corner of the earth that kept the scriptures from thousands of years ago from 2000 years ago for 3000 years ago the 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 actual um the actual wording is the same letter for letter and not one single iota or letter or dot has changed it's also because mm-hmm. the, the the torah so when you used to before you had printing press the 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 torah the the you know holy bible for the jews it was written by 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 scribes that mm. they copied it and they have to copy letter by letter and if if for if they make a mistake you know and it takes months or maybe a year and if yeah. if on these rolls you know on these uh, rolls that that you know they can wind up yeah. and um if even one letter by mistake touches the other one that's not supposed to then the whole thing becomes like non-valid and has to be dispersed oh. of and has to start again so crazy because of that you have you, you know when they found in the i think in the 40s or, uh, or when did they find in Qumran they found these old scrolls like some of the originals and they were word for word like letter for letter exactly still the way they are now so that's the one interesting aspect that nothing not a single letter of the holy scripts have changed 
That's so, yeah. So gives a common a common approach to the religion for groups that have spread out, right? Yes, and 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 mm. the, and the other interesting thing is that the religion is not. It's not really. It's not solely based a religion on belief. It's mm. a religion also based on you know history and events and uh, you know and historical facts. And mm. the interesting thing is that a lot of things in the Bible, even to to today, are still being uncovered. Like, uh, so I read the Israeli press, and you have, I I'm going to say, I don't think there's been a week where there hasn't been an article where something new has been discovered or uncovered by mistake, mm. like in an the old. In the region, like by they're digging up and then they're finding this, they're finding a tunnel, they're finding an old monastery, they're finding something. Mm. And it always is something that's in the scriptures that no one knew if it really was existed or not. But everything, like the people, all that history is being dug up. So it's actually mm. like in the ground. And that's so interesting. Like recently yeah. they found... They found also like a ship that sank in front of uh, before the coast, and they had like uh, coins from the from the uh, from another era, uh, you know, mm. back when. And it's uh, it's it's really fascinating. I mean, I mean, it must like be a, so uh, uh, interesting living. You know, I mean, of course, it's a very it's a, as you said, a region covered heavily in the news and the media for maybe the right or wrong reasons, and all the uh, political, economic, and the military. Um, Things that are going on there, mm -hmm. but just on a very simple historical um, sense and context. I mean, just living in that region, which is so ancient, right? It's there. Uh, it's sort of like the birth for three religions, and almost. And just being there, it must be quite an amazing thing. So, so from your language point of view, I just want to get back to this. Is you know, you said you kind of immerse yourself in this this idea that I'm not going to leave. I'm going to start a family there. But you've already started one family in Germany. You haven't got, yeah, sure. you haven't got ten families, right? As far um, uh, as you as you've told. So what is? But you clearly have a knack for picking up a language because it. I mean, there are people who've moved, and I think you know. I I, I lived in Wales. It's not like I picked up Welsh. It's also, but what is the besides being integrated culturally and understanding how it is to live as a local what are the motivational what are the, what are the sort of the motivation for you to pick up a language like is it is it so okay it'll come in handy later i want to travel or is it just that i like to understand a culture from its from its language speaking it i think it's probably some 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 you know uh, some urge of belonging um, mm. you know of being being not being the outsider when i'm somewhere I, I'm mm. guessing it's something deep seated. I haven't really thought about it too much, but mm. it's just like I I immediately try to like play a role and just really imagine like being a local. How would a local order coffee? How would it, you know? And I, I it, it's it's quite yeah, fascinating. It, it's yeah. not it's not pure logic. Like it comes in handy. I mean, it's uh, yeah. I mean, there's certainly I'm sure there's places where I will go where I say, okay, I'm going here for one week in my whole life. And there's no reason to pick up the language. Um, but mm. even then I would, I'm, I would just be very interested in it because, uh, yeah, I, yeah, I, th I think it's, it has something to do with, with, you know, with growing up in the, in the different cultures and never really being sure where I belong and where I should belong. Mm. I think it has something to do with that, which, which created this, you know, this, um, and that's probably mixed with a, a talent. Uh, you know, I have a talent for, at least for accents, um, mm. you know, at least that I know. Um, and um so which is also helps because you know when i i learned to speak french in a way that french people cannot tell that i'm not french which is ah, okay that, that's so, amazing so that's something remarkable it's not just like learning the language and just communicating right um 
So, and that you're not a spy, right? <laughs> yeah, I'm too old for that, I think. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, it's amazing what uh, what you kind of get a glimpse of when you speak the language like a local, right? Of course, because I fantasize sometimes sitting in like Croatia going, I wish, wish I could just break into fluid, fluid, uh, into the, the, the language and just order a drink or just, you know, just surprise someone going, yeah. And they're like, whoa, we're just like, it's more a fantasy. It's never come, come true. But do you get a different glimpse of what the reality is when you do uh, speak like the native? Yes, and that is, that is exactly the reason. That is more the reason I do it. It's not really for communicating. Mm. It is more because it 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 opens up the culture. Yeah, yeah. You know, okay. it opens up a culture for you. Uh, for and I mean the example. One of the examples that I can give you, or well, it's, I don't know examples, but like in, in the so you've met some Israelis, right? Mm. So Israelis, they're if you're one on one of them with uh, with them they're they're like they're very warm people they're easy to speak with and everything yeah but they often seem on the outside <clears throat> to be if you're in Israel or you're traveling or something or you're there as a tourist they can seem very shrewd and very rude because mm. there there's a saying in in Israel that the Israelis who are born there are sabras which is like a cactus where that's very hard on the outside and very soft on the inside okay okay and but I, I I don't even think it's the right. I don't think they're that hard on the outside. It's just that um, it's just that the, the culture itself is just because of all the you know the immediate dangers that they've been in for yeah. so long. Uh, it's just they, they they don't have they just don't they never got to this point where they have time for small talk or for beating around the bush or or uh, you know talking in talking in in flowery terms. It's just hmm. like they say what they think and. Yeah. So instead of, um, I don't know if you've, have you, you probably had when, when you work with computers and you've had um, chats with tech support and there's yeah. some companies you, you contact them and with a problem, you're like, yeah, mm. my software, it's not working or my account isn't working or whatever. Yeah. Mm. And then the, the answer you get is, hello, how are you doing today? I'm so happy to help you with your problem. Do I yeah. understand you correctly that you have a problem with, with the software? And then, like you know, and that me it drives me nuts. The script, basically, the script that doesn't need to be there, basically, just to make sure that everyone sounds the same. Yeah, it, it's no because because so, yeah. yeah, some uh, I don't want to say some idiot, but some some person yeah. sat there and said, yeah, yeah, you need to make the customers feel good. Some yeah. psychologist, right? And then, yeah. uh, but that's it, it, it has the opposite. I mean, effect. it just wastes a lot of time. And when you ask, when you actually ask the right questions, or rather, the questions that you would want answered, they're like, uh, "Can we, can we put you on hold, and uh, can we just get our manager on the call?" I'm like, oh, we didn't need any of the first ten minutes, man. We just needed you to answer this." Yeah, yeah. So it, that's so, so. In my in my company, what we do for for uh, support, we have also like online chat support, for example, right? Yeah. Somebody asks something like, uh, "My discount code isn't working," or or how do I do this? Or, you know, or, uh, and if either, if I can answer it, I'll just answer it. And then, you know, I'll get back a thank you and then I'll send them a heart, a heart emoji. Yeah. yeah. And then they're like super happy. Or if I, I can't immediately answer it, I'd be like, the first thing I, I don't write, hello, how are you today? All that. I would just, mm, if they okay. ask me a question and I know I have to look it up, but it takes me a minute, then I'm, I would just write checking dot, dot, dot. And that's it. Like I would, I, I want, I want the customers to feel like they're like their friend is texting them, and they're getting the work done. So, the, you're, you're, so you're kind exactly. of drawing a parallel here, I'm assuming, between the the ways the Israelis go about their their way of communicating, right? 
Yeah, so the, so, the, so the Israelis are the way they are is mostly because of the army, right? They, the 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 mm. boys have to uh, serve for three years and the girls for two years. So in right. in the army, they get immediately they get they have to they get impossible tasks. So like somebody mm. maybe is in the army for a few weeks and then like hey you're actually going into enemy territory and you have to manage a team of twelve people and this is your job and this is your mission and you have to do and they have to figure out how to do it. So there's mm. the hierarchies, everything is like flexible and once they get out of that training after three years, they you know they're afraid of nothing. They're not afraid of public speaking. They're not they're like, and then they yeah. can launch themselves into any business and they're just like the. They'll just go, you know, there's nothing holding them back. Like, I don't have that. But when I'm in the culture, like, I I enjoy being there and some of it rubs off, you know? Like, you, you learn yeah, to... Yeah. You learn to be a little bit. Sometimes you know, I can when I'm stuck somewhere, I can say, okay, what what? How would an Israeli handle the situation? And then it, yeah. you know, and it, it gets you out of your own the the own things that stop you. Yeah, that that is interesting. Yeah, yeah. No, I actually had a person. I one of the, my, my he's a, he's I met him as a mind coach and a, a, he's a sports. Uh, he helps athletes uh, reach the sort of optimal. Uh, performance level, especially psychologically. Um, so I had him on this podcast and uh, he was talking about the same thing, how he was in the special forces and he had to get um, Israeli, his fellow soldiers from across uh, the behind enemy lines and just how he basically used that experience to condition his mind into not panicking and not completely crumbling under pressure, but how he uses that as a, an example and a launch point to help other people now deal with stress, deal with, um, as you said, what you've been through, like burnouts, how to perform to their optimal levels. So it's very interesting that it's 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 a cultural thing when you are in experiencing hostility on a daily basis, when you have to serve and not just serve like say like a sing in like in Singapore where you just have to go and come back, but you might be facing live action, you know, but. Mm -hmm. It's crazy. Now, I, I want to just, you know, move on with um, wh how you got from there. I mean, I, I think that there's a lot and I don't want to take away from your story. But, um, okay, so the languages you speak, of course, English, German, um, and um, Spanish, you mentioned. Um, so can, can you tell me the others before we move? Yeah. I'm quite uh, I also speak French, uh, also French and uh -huh. uh, uh, Hebrew, which is the language mm -hmm. of Israel, right? And, and then uh -huh. it's also a language. Then there's a language called Yiddish that I also yeah, I was going to ask you, learned, what is the difference? Yeah. So, uh, it's, it's something completely different. The only, the only similarity, well, there's some similarities, which is they use the same, the Yiddish uses the Hebrew alphabet and ah, uh, okay. it does have some, uh, has a lot of words from Hebrew in it. Um, but okay. it's structurally, it's, it's much, much closer to German, let's say. Um, ah, okay. So German speakers can, I wouldn't say German speakers can understand Yiddish. I mean, not really. They might think they do, but uh, it's still it's still very close. So that they they feel like they they feel like they understand it even. So that it's it's it's, it. it's a Germanic. It's sort of a Germanic language that that was um, uh, it, it was a language that was spoken by the Jews of Eastern Europe. Uh, until World mm. War II, and then it was almost wiped out. Um, right. But there's a lot of um, there's a, there's literature, there's a lot of music, and a lot uh, left over in this culture. And this is this is basically this that language and that culture was my entryway to to this whole uh, to the whole Jewish world. Uh, that mm. you know, I only discovered when I was in, in you know when I became a teenager, 
and I discovered that and I started learning it and um, uh, that was basically my doorway into into that world uh, so yeah I, so that's my sixth language I guess and then um, mm. and because of the Spanish and the, the French I do understand and can you know communicate in languages that is that are similar to that like latin languages such as uh, italian okay. and portuguese um okay so i wouldn't call myself completely fluent but like uh, mm -hmm. i can uh, in italian i can i can watch a movie and understand you know 80 85 90 and oh, uh, really speak, cool. speaking is a less you know is a little, little bit harder but i've i've done it and it's okay um yeah so and then now my wife uh, grew up as a russian speaker And so mm. my kids speak Russian and her parents speak Russian and we have, so I hear a lot of Russian. Um, so I'm able to have a conversation in Russian, but I'm by no means fluent. Um, right. I never like formally sat down and really studied it. Um, mm. But yeah, so that's a language I can work with. And then um, my, basically my favorite language is Arabic. And I, mm. I'm also okay. not fluent in it because I'm, uh, it's, it's just this thing that I kept starting to learn and starting to learn and, um, you know, little things add up. So I'm, I'm at a certain level now, uh, uh, but it's like I have a love for that language. And I, I know yeah. that, what, you know, one day I'm, I'll have time and I'll like really d dive deep into it because, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's a great language. And it has so many different um, variations and, and accents from different countries. And that's, that's what mm. I enjoy. Like even for Spanish, like I can speak Spanish like a Mexican, like a, well, I mean, not, maybe not exactly like, but like I can do that. I can speak in different types of Spanish, you know, from Spain, mm. from, from, from Argentina, from Mexico, from, from Colombia. And I, I will hear, I hear the difference. Like I can, I can tell where the speaker right. is from and I can sort of change my own accent to it. So that's, that's, that's my passion. That's what I love to do. You know, it's not, it's not just the communication. Ah, it's brilliant. I mean, it's, it's truly such a, I mean, not just, to impress people at parties or to be suddenly, you know, pop up at a coffee shop in a country where people think you're a foreigner and suddenly be like sounding like them. And they're like, what the hell? I think it's more than just a party trick, but just the love for understanding a, a, a window into the culture from the language that that culture uses to communicate, I think is quite mind blowing. No, but since you mentioned um, Arabic and um There's something which I, I'd like to find out more about. I mean, I'm not saying all Arabs, but of course, we when we think about Arabia and we think about the desert, we think about camels. And I'm going to use that as a segue of uh, <laughs> okay, how good. you got into camel latte. And can you tell uh, me more about that and what its um, purpose is and how you transition from IT services and software tech to uh, camel milk and its applications for human benefits? Sure. So I don't know. You you may not be able to see, but I have some. I have a skin condition called vitiligo, which is okay. where the the color pigmentation of the skin disappears. And this is this is what uh, famously what Michael Jackson had. So it's it's, so, it's not it's not uh, the same as an albino, right? Just from uh, no, it's, no albino is no. But I I guessing albino is probably also some kind of immune disorder i'm guessing mm -hmm. um, there's another so one called leukoderma if i'm not mistaken i'm just sorry i'm just throwing out names which i've heard with skin conditions with pigmentation i could be okay. completely wrong yeah but they're, they're they're all a little bit different so vitiligo okay. is something that people say that that almost everyone has it but it's just like most people it doesn't break out so to say you know uh, like some okay. people have like maybe one spot where it's like why is this like lighter than the rest of your skin for example right um, and 
it, it can break out probably due to stress, but it's, there's, there's no real treatment for it that's actually effective and there's no, and people don't know exactly where, where it comes from. It's just when you get it, you're basically probably stuck with it. It can maybe recede a little bit, but there's not much you can do with it. It's just, a, essentially, it's just a cosmetic condition though. You know, it's just the okay. looks. But of right. course, the darker your skin is, the more freakish you look, and especially if it's all over the face, like I have it on my forehead and everything. But if I spend an hour in the sun, you like really see like spots on my head. But okay. Uh, okay. for someone with a very dark skin, it can be very traumatic, right? The contrast and is a lot more, right, right. When I first got it, I, 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 I tried to figure out what can I do, other treatments, I tried different things. And I basically told myself, and that's my belief, is that the only way to heal this is, uh, you know, spiritually through through meditation and through, you know, vibrations. And then, but it, it, that's also a lot of work. And it, it, it's not like extremely important to me to whether I'm a little bit darker or lighter, I don't care. So personally, it's not like a big issue for me, but it was that for a while. And uh, so I was looking into skin things. And when we moved to Israel, as I said, we had two kids. Uh, yeah. two young kids and um well, one of them had when we were in germany in the winter time he had like his face would like every time it was cold his face would like have these red spots and everything on the on the cheeks okay. and the other kid actually had super dry skin you would put his the your hand on the belly and it would be like a scratch board oh my uh, god he, he has eczema afterwards when he got older but I don't know what it is, but anyway, yeah. so we proceed. So I thought what we could do. And at, while we were living in Israel, a friend gave us camel milk to drink he, because he had a connection to a camel farm and, and he mm. gave us camel milk. He said, drink it. It's healthy. Drink a glass a day. And so my wife and I did that and we actually liked it. Like if we felt that it was good, it was kind of like a sort of a vitamin boost shot, you know, mm -hmm. that type of thing. Um, you, we did feel good about it. And it wasn't until a little bit later that we started researching camel milk and we realized, yeah, it's also actually really good for the skin. And it's been used for thousands of years on for to treat skin conditions, psoriasis, ex eczema, and, and all kinds of uh, skin conditions. But, you know, there's no real um, cosmetics or uh, medicine available on it. Like we heard about this, someone who got camel milk cream in, in, a, in a pharmacy in Egypt and they had super good results. Right. And then... We we're like, yeah, but why is that so hard to get? And then we said, hey, maybe that's something we should, that would be a cool business, creating camel milk cosmetics. So the entrepreneur I am is like right away, yeah. we created a name, we created a logo, but then it kind of got to push on the side because it was still busy with other things, right? Yeah. And it wasn't until I think five years later that we said, hey, every year it's, we still need to do something that makes us successful and what's the next thing we're going to work on? That kept coming up as one of the possibilities. And then at one, around 2018, we basically pulled the trigger and said, yeah, this is, a, this is our big project now. And we're just going to go all in on this. And mm. so that's when things started happening. Like we did had to do a lot of research. We had to learn how to do cosmetic formulations, uh, find a lab to work with, uh, get good sources of camel milk. Yeah, so camel milk itself in the Middle East, it's quite known. You know, like mm. you have places in like in the Emirates. It's uh, it became, in the last 10 years, it became a very, very big thing. They have... Um, gigantic camel farms there um they you have in the supermarkets you have all types of camel milk but all the camel milk there is it's just it's just for food it's just for okay. nut nutrition um, okay so they, they <clears throat> instead of buffalo cow milk or goat milk their preferred source of milk is from the camel no i mean i'm sure the cow milk is big there too but there it's very widely accepted just as cow milk is like everyone knows right. about it everyone knows about the health benefits but the, you can't compare like it's very different the composition and everything people who are lactose intolerant can drink camel mm. milk and have no reaction oh crazy because it's because camel milk has a different type of lactose uh, there's like two types of lactose 
And so camel milk is, is consists of all these fatty acids and the vitamin content uh, of like vitamin C is like six times that of camel milk of cow milk. There, there was a TED talk by a lady. I think she she took camel milk. She drank camel milk for one year only only camel milk, nothing else, and she was fine, mm. like totally fine. Which means that the camel milk has really everything you need, and it's very close to it's the closest milk, uh, the closest animal milk, closest to breast milk to human breast milk. Interesting, no, because yes, you think right, like the camel lives in quite harsh conditions. It doesn't have the most nutrition, yeah. but it's it's amazing that it can it it, it gives out this um, sort of life supporting, sustaining milk that is beneficial, but. How do you extract it? Like, what do you um, use it for? Like, do you use the milk in its form? As you said, you can drink it. Um, sorry, I'm going to ask questions which might seem really silly and basic, but just <laughs> no, to give fine. people an idea. Uh, because, I mean, you, you don't hear of it, right? Like, how do you get it out of the camel? The camel isn't the most pleasant animal at all times. It could, could be quite vicious and bite, right? So getting it out, yeah. to, uh, where do you use it? Yeah. You know how they say that ele an elephant never forgets? It's, it's yeah. double true for a camel. So I've heard these yeah. stories from camel farmers where they also like they had horses and there was a horse that sometimes like kicked a camel. And like then one day they got up and the camel, then the horse was dead because the camel oh. took care of it, you know, like, so oh my God, right. Um, camels are very interesting animals themselves. The camel milk is, they call it the white gold of the desert. And it's not only because it's so nutritious and so good, but it's also because it's so hard actually to produce in, you know, in large numbers. So a camel... Mm. A camel will only give milk for about eight months. Uh, so only while it has a baby. Mm. And then it will only give milk after you let the baby drink. Right. So you so can't the baby has to stand it. next. Right. So this baby has to stand next to the camel. The camel has to feel good. Otherwise, it won't give milk. It, it, when you, it, mm. you feed the baby and then you get some milk. And you get about a tenth the, the amount that you would get from a cow. So you can't artificially induce or trick the camel into believing that the kid has eaten, but it only gives once it knows that the the the, the calf has been nourished, okay. right? What I'm telling you is the nature of the animals. Now, mm. the far where we get the camel milk is from a small farm. They have 25 female camels, mm. and they milk the ones that have babies, and it's very ethical. In the Emirates, there are farms with 3,000 camels or more. They oh, work so, with okay. machines. Have they figured out a way to milk the camels without their babies around? Probably. It's it's an industry that is growing and the demand for the product is so much higher than the supply. But I don't know because I'm not in the farming business at all. So we yeah. only get our milk from a really like a local family farm. Um, Which is, of course, as you said, is doing it without putting the animal in distress and yes and it's also it, it's controlled by the health ministry everything's very very strict there and you know very controlled mm. there essentially what we do is you know if you have cosmetics skincare cosmetics body care cosmetics yeah. so body lotions or so or soap first of all it's important to use natural products because yeah. what you put on your skin goes into your body we're realizing that more and more now and all the big Cosmetic companies are switching over to clean or buying into clean beauty. And that's the, that's the biggest growing trend. But still, most of the industry still has a lot of ingredients that aren't very healthy for the skin. There's reasons for it also because of, you know, preservatives and all of that. But yeah, um, 
Yeah. So essentially, our our products are are natural, only natural ingredients, right? Essential yeah. oils and such. But the interesting thing is, whether natural or not natural, any skincare that you buy will usually consist sixty, sometimes up to eighty percent of water as a base. So right. on the ingredients label, the ingredients have to be stated in order of. Um, volume other volume in the product so whatever is yeah. stated first is what's most so you will yeah. see any skincare product that you pick up you will see the first thing it will say is water yeah a lot of it is marketing so you have these big companies they have like products that are called like hyaluronic acid filler which helps against wrinkles in the face right okay okay but i look mm. at the ingredients list and the, and the it's almost the last thing on the ingredient there's mm. like 0.05 percent uh, there's like one drop of it in there maybe. Yeah, I don't even yeah, know yeah. if it can have any effect. That's the secret of the cosmetics industry that you know confuses consumers. Right. Now what we do in our products, we so the space is always water, which is normal, which is okay, yeah. right? But it's usually 60, 70, 80%. What we do is we replace this water with camel milk. Got it. The base of our product is camel milk. That allows this ingredient to really work on the skin because there's a lot of it in there. So a typical, mm. uh, our product will typically have 30, 40, maybe 50% of pure camel milk. Yeah, the interesting thing with camel milk is camel milk, it can penetrate the outer skin layer easier than other ingredients. Like if you okay. use something like argan oil on your body, it, it will be good for a while, but then it saturates the pores mm. <clears throat> and then everything stays like fatty. Now, now, camel milk will help even if all the other ingredients that you have in the product, all the other essential oils, it will help transport them into the skin. Okay, so it's a good medium, a good carrier, besides being also, nutritious in itself, right? Yeah, and if you've never used camel milk uh, skincare, uh, you have to try it because you you feel a difference on your skin if it was camel milk rather than a water-based uh, cosmetic. Mm, right. So, yeah, so we think there's a lot of future in it, both in our family, but also our customers. We see them have great results for things like eczema. Um, so, you know, to treat eczema. And um, it's... Uh, yeah, and I mean it's it's just very healthy for the skin. The other thing that we do in our in our products um, is that we we created like a um, a signature scent which we did, which create from we create from different essential oils and it's a mix and we we kind of it, it took us a long time to tweak because it's a scent that I'm gonna say 95 percent of the people that buy that buy our products really love the scent like love it so much mm. that they comment and they write to us and they want more products with the scent. So, uh, so what's the scent you know, so if people are interested to get your website, camelatte.com, if they want, what's the scent called? So You will find it, it's just called Signature Scent. Okay. And so there's almost all the products have the scent, like the body butter and a, and a face and body soap and so on. And, nice. Um, and a shower cream have the scent. The name Camelate, by the way, is a, it's, a, it's a play on, an, on the Italian name because the, Ital the Italian name for camel is Camello. But it's spelled with a double M and a double L. So, uh -huh. and the word for milk in Italian is latte. Ah, okay. So, camello right. latte, right. So, so, so camelate is, uh, we spell it with a double M, double L, and a double T. Right. Camelate.com. Right, right. Yeah. Uh, nice. Anyway, that just happened. <laughs> it's, uh, nice. you know, a name for a business, you never get the perfect name. And, uh, you know, people point to like Google as a name mm. like who you know what idiot comes up with a name like that yeah and it becomes <laughs> and the wants most to get used. funding 
<laughs> but hey, you know, so the name is really secondary, <laughs> they say. No, it's nice. I mean, so this actually helps people because skin disorders are something which people kind of get so chemically treated with, right? Like uh, get all these things put on them and doesn't help. Mm -hmm. And it's amazing where, but the problem, I mean, as you said, you know, there is of course such benefits from this, but the supply is limited. The demand is increasing, which of course leads to these huge farms. Okay. So, so okay. So you've, you've done this, which is fantastic. I mean, it's just from software to camel milk. It's quite a vast experience. I mean, and all these languages and your kind of shuttling with your family between two countries. It's quite a, it's quite an eventful life that you're living in. And, you know, it's, it's, before we wrap up, I just want to understand, you know, with, uh, I, I, I don't know how to approach the issue, but with um, the entire thing happening in Europe now, there's, of course, um, you're kind of in Germany as we speak. Yep. And you're on the, you know, you're on, you're kind of in the, in the, you know, in the bleachers watching all this happening in the theater mm -hmm. of Ukraine. Um, what is you, what is the, the thing? What is the mood like um, where you are? I mean, I, I didn't ask which city in Germany you are, but um, generally, what is the mood like, especially with your wife being from Ukraine, yes. um, have already been fled and I have already fled from the old occupying power being the Soviet power and now experience this whole thing almost repeating itself what what is what is the what is the sense of what's going on there for you I think the sense around me is what I get from other people here what I see uh, in my in my circle what's happening um, everyone's trying to help everyone's trying to be active the same is in in the US there's a lot of you know talk about it and it's become this virtual thing especially for for corporations you know i'm sure uh, half of it is probably virtual si uh, signaling uh, virtual signaling yeah. just trying to be like uh, you know show that you're doing something um half of it is the yeah, same yeah. but there's i i know there's honestly concern here we have a lot of um also in my smaller town in germany where i'm from uh, where i am here in heidelberg uh, which is next to okay. Mannheim, by the way. We've already had a few thousand refugees come in and we're helping okay. organize and we're doing fundraising for them and, and helping them get started here and trying to organize language courses. Yeah, I see almost everyone's trying to help. People, you know, put up flags, colors, this, same on social media. Uh, so there's a lot of concern. I think it's a human thing. It's People like to have a cause, even if they're far away from it. I don't know if it's always the right thing. The problem is that we all know that media cannot be trusted 100%. Like, yeah, I was going to ask you It that. paints a picture yeah. and it's easy to jump on the bandwagon and just go in one direction. And you always have to be careful what you say. Uh, my wife is from the Ukraine. We have a lot of friends from there. People are suffering. And the worst for me is really just like war makes a population suffer. The human tragedy is the worst of all. And that's where what everyone can try to do something or at least fundraise or do something about it going the other way. And it's turning on Russians because in Russian, in Russia, there are also people living and now they can no longer buy anything from the West, spend any money in the West. Um, they're being, they're being punished. If they protest yeah, the war, they, they, you know, then their own regime uh, locks them up and the West is just creating this anti-Russian aggression, which for me is, I isn't, good either right which is you can't hate the russian people because uh, the ones who do support the war maybe have misplaced loyalties where they're being fed all this information and the ones who are trying to fight uh, and say protest the war as you said are being punished for it and they their money the, the value of their money is dropping they're not getting access to food um 
so yeah, as you said, it's, I think it's really important to highlight that while, of course, you know, the, the suffering on the Ukrainian front is horrible and a lot of uh, people are fleeing their homes, I don't think the solution is to hate the Russian people. There's always, you know, there's a, there's something from our point of view that we can think of. Then there's if you're if you're a politician or if you're doing it on a state level, it's you have other things to consider. So it's not an, it's yeah. not a black and white thing. Of course, war is bad, and this this shouldn't be happening. But the yeah. response to it is something that you should still at least think about what your response should be instead of just going all in in one direction. Because just saying, yeah, mm. any boycott anything Russian. Uh, I hate this Russian dictator in some small form. It's going to come back on him. And I don't care if the, if his people suffer for it. It's not that easy. Uh, it's not, not before you know, he does, black and white. Correct. But because before he does suffer, like millions of people will, because he's quite uh, cocooned in his space, right? I think it's kind of dangerous what's happening right now. It's not, it's not a good thing. I think the uh, priority should be in stopping this war because this war can lead to very bad things uh, in Europe. I know there's talk of World War III. Doesn't mean there's like tons of countries are going to bomb each other. Doesn't necessarily mean that, but it means that, you know, the world order is changing and or maybe changing. Yeah. And the more bloody it is, the, the, the worse it is for everyone. So the, the priority yeah. should just be to kind of stop that fighting. And that's not necessarily pressure in one way is the only way to do it. There's other ways to do it. And there's a lot of things we don't see. It's not just a simple, simple thing in the media. Just, just It's only good and bad, and that's it. But whatever it may be, the, the people, the children, the women, the, the men who are being bombed out of their homes and losing their lives, I think that I think that, that is pretty black and white. It's pretty damn bad. That shouldn't happen. Yeah, and I that, think whatever that, no, thing, no, absolutely. Yeah. No, anything, yeah. no, no, the, any, anything, this war, like there should not be a single bombing, anything. There shouldn't absolutely, be Russian soldiers yeah. no, I'm agreeing with at that. all. Absolutely. And the priority must be to get them out. But the question is, what is yeah. the right way to do it? We seem to be no, stuck. No, because... if, we, 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 if we're just thinking, we're thinking that on that side is a madman and all he wants is just bomb people. It might not be true. There might be a lot of strategic things and historic things and things that, we're not yeah, really yeah, yeah. so privy to um, that are playing here that in other words we need to understand what are the motivations and what is the best way to end this the best way to end this is not necessarily something that should lead to even more war yeah yeah you know, no, I was totally like you as you said as you said rightly like the human suffering is very black and white it shouldn't happen but yes. we can't just apply the same thing to why it's happening right because that's what people are doing like of course war is bad we know that we're agreeing with that but why is it happening isn't what the media might know you might you and i might not know but there's so many consequences of past actions that are leading to this so as you said maybe it's not sanctions maybe it's not more war but we need to find an answer soon and stop it i think that's i think that's something everyone can agree on it hopefully will lead to some kind of agreement that both sides can live with I hate uh, applying the term both sides because while I'm saying it is not black and white, it is not also multicolored either. I mean, there is a, you know, it, yeah. it is a very light black and a, and a very, and it's a dark white. So it's that it is clear, but in the end, still it, just bombing the hell out of, out of the other side, then it's not going not to gonna work. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's just going to make more people suffer. So we have, you True. know, it has to be figured out. I'd rather spend my time trying to actually help the people that, I can help to that yeah. arrive to make them to help make people's lives better. And whether they're fleeing from from Ukraine or you know, there's some Russian people fleeing now as well. Yeah, but essentially, is that that's that's 
the first thing you need to do is just help the people that you know that that are yeah, suffering. Yeah, the, the reality that is the people coming. Yeah. Now I really hope that you know your friends and family and your wife's uh, family. I hope people can make it out, and it's ho- horrible all around what's happening. But um, Mark, thank you so much for taking the time for sharing your story, and it's been a, it's it's a fascinating life you've lived, and you know thanks so much for you know being so open about everything and taking the time to join me in this podcast and sharing with me and people listening today um all the best for your um startups for your camel latte project and um you know best wishes best wishes for you and your family and really appreciate it my friend thank you sandeep thank you very much i also i want to say that i really like the idea of the podcast where you basically just get someone on and just uh be very um, flexible with topics and what to talk about. I, so I think I really, I really like that style. I mean, that's um, it's great to, to be able to do it online. And yeah, it is not, really fantastic. Yeah. So uh, thank you very much. And I do want to add also that you know I realize that these three countries that I mostly spend time in the U.S., Germany, and Israel can all be considered the Western world, which until mm-hmm. now at least was the privileged one percent, if you will. Even with all the trouble that we may have or things that we that we struggle with uh, in our in our personal or financial lives here in, in, you know around me i have to realize that i'm always grateful being able to live in in stable countries yeah. where there's not a lot of danger and i realize that it's a privilege and maybe not everyone who hears this is in the same situation where there's they're looking at someone who's they traveling 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 you know it's like uh, it sounds like a life of abundance i guess everyone in their own bubble can has their own happiness their own problems but yeah sometimes you have to be grateful for the things that you do have or the chances that you've been given and that's the case for me certainly i uh, i'm very often very grateful for what i've been able to do yeah uh, sandeep thank you very much for the conversation appreciate it Thank you, and I'm glad that we started this conversation as two strangers, and now we, well, know a lot more about each other. So appreciate it, and this is my way of traveling. <laughs> thank you, Mark. Appreciate right. it, my friend. Th- thank you as well. Hey, thank you so much for listening to this episode. If you like what you heard, please do check out the other episodes on YouTube or wherever you get your podcast. And I would much appreciate it if you could like the video, share it with people who you think might enjoy it. And of course, do subscribe to the channel because it will help me and the podcast grow and reach more people just like you. So thanks again. Appreciate it.